Well, take your Bibles with me this morning and turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This will be the second lesson in this series, Salvation by Grace, part 2. Salvation by Grace, part 2. I, I, yeah, I'm grateful. Uh, yeah, I, I think a long, long time before I title anything because a lot of times people key off of, you know, they religious people have a tendency to look for titles. You know, they look for something that jumps out and catches their attention. And this mess, that this lesson uh, that I uploaded last week, and I just uploaded it to sermon on, I mean, to YouTube like yesterday morning, and it it went to the top of the charts as far as downloads and listened to, uh, and I, I'm I'm thankful for that. You know, I'm I'm grateful that uh, that God by His grace is pleased to use His message of of a full, free, eternal redemption to call out his people to true faith and true repentance. And I'm grateful that if, even if nobody's affected by it, at least it's heard. Because, I mean, that, that's the thing. Whether men hear the message or not, the, the necessity is that we preach the gospel. And one thing that I know, the, the older that I get, and the longer that the Lord allows me to preach uh, his gospel, I never grow weary I, uh, of, of talking about and discussing, especially not only Christ's blood and his righteousness, but I take great comfort and I gain great assurance as a child of God in knowing that God is absolutely sovereign in this matter, that it does not depend upon me, that it does not depend upon you. It's not on our skills or our deliverance or our ability to woo or coax men and women into making a decision. That's, that's, that's the thing that is the furthest from my mind every time I preach the gospel. I don't want to convince anybody, Kenny. Because if I can convince you, somebody else can, if they come up with better arguments and come across kinder or more likable or, or more understanding, they can convince you of something else. It all boils back down to this. They shall be all taught of God. If God teaches a man or a woman, if he's pleased to give them eyes to see, ears to hear, heart, mind, and will to comprehend, they might not understand everything to begin with about the, the sovereign election of our God. But one thing is certain in God's children, they will not resist that which our God has purposed and planned. They will not rail against it and say, well, I wouldn't worship a God like that. If, if, listen, if that's your attitude toward God being absolutely sovereign in the salvation of his people, you don't know the true and living God at this particular point in time. Because the idea is, the, the, the truth, the reality of it is, God is God. He's on the throne. Our God, David said, is in the heavens. Right? We believe that? Whatsoever... He hath pleased. You hear that? Whatsoever he hath pleased. That he did in heaven and in the earth. I always think about Nebuchadnezzar. He had thought that he would ascend up and be this powerful uh, dignitary that was above reproach and above control of anybody. And our God brought him to the ground, humbled him. And at the end of his humiliation, even as a lost, unregenerate sinner, he admitted the fact all the inhabitants of the earth 
are counted as nothing. A king, king of Babylon. And he says all, including himself, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he doeth according to his will. Among the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And listen, listen to this. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? That's the God we worship. That's the God that has told us by Paul's own hand, by his Holy Spirit, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. I don't know why anybody would avoid that. I don't know why anybody would shy away from that. Oh, don't teach that. It's too hard. I tell you something that's hard. Something that's hard is understanding the triunity of our God. That's something hard. Uh-huh. This thing of him, he, he, he's very clear. He lets us know who and what we are. And from the verses that we looked at last Sunday, it's crystal clear. Now, this is the thing we need to understand. It is absolutely crystal clear that all men by nature, all men by nature, and by all I do mean all men and women without exception, every person that has ever breathed a breath is who I'm talking about. All men by nature, including God's elect, are incapable. You hear me? They are incapable of doing anything to attain deliverance or to maintain deliverance from their lost condition. How do we know that? He told us last week, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, what did he do with them? He quickened them. Where in time past, this is us, all of us, in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So he said we were with these children of disobedience. We identified with them. We walked with them. They might have been my, my brother by, by birth. They might have been my, my sister, my mom, my dad, my neighbor, somebody that I work with, some long-lost friend, some old preacher, some old teacher. We, they were all in the same condition. Those Pharisees that hated our Lord, moral, religious, law keepers, right? Calling Jehovah their God, claiming to be Abraham's children, what were they? A answer that question. What were they? They were children of disobedience. And we were right in there with them. Every unbelieving sinner, we were all by nature children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation. I told you last week that word conversation means our behavior, our livelihood. In times past, in the lust of the flesh, you say, well, no, nah, no, no, we weren't in that. Let the scriptures guide you, not, not what 
what religions programs your mind. The lust of the flesh. To, to understand what Paul meant by the lust of the flesh, you've got to go back and read Romans chapter 7. He said he had not known lust except the Scriptures say, Thou shalt not covet. And I've always wondered, what did, what did Saul of Tarsus covet? Did he covet another man's wife? Did he cover another man's... Is that what he's talking about? When he cried out, Oh, wretched man that I am, what was he talking about? The good he wanted to do, he doesn't do. The evil he doesn't want to do, that's exactly what he finds himself doing. What were the lusts of the flesh? What, what illicit, uh, evil, vile, sinful thing was Saul of Tarsus lusting after? You know what he's lusting after? A righteousness. One of his own production. Huh? How do you know that? I let the scriptures be my guide. Philippians 3. So you just couldn't, all you got to do is draw, draw it on a chalkboard and draw from Ephesians 2 to Romans 7 and then draw the line back to Philippians 3. Connect the dots and you know what lust of the flesh is. Now, don't get me wrong. It does include immortality. There are some ungodly, we live in probably the most ungodly society that's existed in forever. Can you envision just 10 short years ago? Heck. Pre-COVID, five short years ago, us being in a situation where we're in now to where we don't even know how to, people, people, most people will not define what a man or a woman is? Say they don't know? <laughs> and if you say anything contrary to that, what are you? You're, you're, you're a hater. You're prejudiced. You're a xenophobe. I had to look that word up to figure out what it was. But we're all those things. We're prejudiced. No, we're just scriptural. But it does include those things, but that's not the point. Paul was none of that. Saul of Tarsus. His darkness was what kind of darkness? Religious darkness. And I'm going to tell you what, religious darkness far outweighs immoral darkness. And it just does. You know, don't, the media always talks about, well, you know, only 55% of the United States now believe in God. Well, whoop-de-doo. I'd, 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 I'd like to write the article for them. Because the article would be this, 99% of America doesn't believe in God. Matter of fact, I'd write it even further than that. About 99.9% .9 of America doesn't believe in the God of the Scriptures. You say, I question that. Well, then you don't, you don't know the God I'm telling you about yet. He, he, our God is not this God all these other folks worship. And if it is, we need to go be with them. among whom all we had our conversation in times past and the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature, by birth, born into this body, just like them, walking and talking just like them, with a mind just like theirs, a will that had the same direction as theirs, 
Luther wrote a book, probably the best book he ever wrote, The Bondage of the Wheel. The problem is not with the gospel. The problem is what? It's with man's will by nature. You will not come to me that you might have life. They won't come because they can't come. Because they're in bondage to what? That old Adamic nature. And that's what we were to, even as others. But he's saying we're not, we're not there anymore. I didn't really put a whole lot of emphasis last week on one word that the Holy Spirit used to describe man's condition. And you hath he quickened who were, here we go, dead. Were, we were dead. That, that word dead is the one I don't think I put enough emphasis on. It's the Greek word necros. I don't know a lot of Greek, but I, do, I can pronounce that one, necros. Which, in a physical sense, when, we, when the, word, the Greek word necros was used, talking about physical things, talking about outward things that we can put up, put up, we can view with our eyes. It means one that has breathed his last breath. It means lifeless. It means deceased. It means destitute of life, without life, inanimate. Everybody out in Kilpatrick Memorial Garden physically are D-E-A-D. They're dead. They're without life, right? But then in a spiritual sense, metaphorically, it's speaking about spiritual death. Because we know he's not talking about that these people that he wrote to were formerly without life physically, because they were alive the whole time. They were dead while they were alive. So he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. And in that sense, you know what it means? It means destitute of a life that recognizes or could be devoted to God. It means given up to trespasses and sins. It means inactive as respects doing right. But here's, the, the, to me, the best definition of spiritual death. Destitute of force or power, inactive, inoperative. In other words, you cannot do anything. So that means that all men by nature, including God's elect, what are they? They're graveyard dead, spiritually. So much so that there is dead in trespasses and sins, as could ever be possibly illustrated, as Lazarus was dead in the grave three days, and when our Lord said, roll around away the stone, he said, where's he at? They said, he's in the, in the ground. He's been there three days. By now, what's he doing? And that's what men are by nature. They're stinking spiritually. They're a stench in the nostril of the true and living God. I've been asking this question for almost four decades. That's, that's weird for me to say that. For almost four decades, I've asked this question. of Everybody that I've ever talked with about the gospel at some point in time, the question is a simple one. What can a dead man do? Can they talk? Dead. What can, what can a dead person do? Can they talk? Can they walk? Can they think? 
Can they desire? Can they do anything? The answer is no. Why? They're dead. They're dead. I, I thought about this. I wrote this into my notes right before I came up here this morning. Why Solomon? He, he wrote this, these words. I, I quoted it last week, but I'm going to read it to you this morning. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. Now, this man knew God. Solomon was a believer. But yet Solomon, in his wisdom of man, he says this, Who can say, this is Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from sin. The answer is, what? Nobody. Not one of us. I didn't turn over a new leaf 36 years ago. I didn't start down the straight and narrow 36 years ago. Huh? My state before the true and living God changed as far as I was concerned because God gave me light, eyes to see, ears to hear, heart, mind, and will to trust in a righteousness that I had no part in producing, a righteousness I had no part in maintaining, a righteousness established in my name and in my nature by one that sits right now at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I was astonished. I told a young lady this week that I was absolutely astonished when I heard, heard that message for the first time. And I was a preacher in a church, supposedly responsible for men and women's souls, their direction, their leadership. I'd have been the same one that been like Nicodemus asking our Lord, how can these things be? But when I heard it, it was instantaneous. It was like, huh? Really? I'm free? There's nothing for me to do? If I don't ever preach another message, I'm safe and secure in Him? That God views me right now, the very righteousness of God in Him. You think about that. Think of what joy that brought to that thief on the cross's mind. <laughs> I'm dying. Before hating our Lord. Look, he was a child of disobedience, just like the other one on the other side, right? Read your Bible. He cast it in our Lord's teeth just like the other one did. Just moments before. And all of a sudden he had a change of will in mind, didn't he? Well, let me think about this thing. I might be wrong. Know what happened? The Lord touched him. Gave him life. And from that man who had been made alive, who was formerly dead in trespasses and sin, what does he say? He says, Lord... No man can call Jesus Lord but by the Holy Spirit. Truly call him Lord. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And that just, that floors the lost religious world. Floors my mind in a sense because you think about what it takes to see in a man hanging there, our Lord beat beyond recognition. 
all the skin beat off his back, stripped naked. They weren't stripped naked. They humiliated our Lord Jesus Christ. Probably still with spittle on his face, a crown of thorns on his head, a sarcastic line above his head, the king of the Jews. Nails, they're, they're roped. Nails in his hands and in his feet. A th sword thrust into his side. What kind of kingdom did he see there? Huh? Would you want any part of that kingdom? I think I'll have some of that. <laughs> What's he see? He's seeing that it's invisible. Just like you and me. The things that are seen, what? They're temporal. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the things that are not seen, eternal. Remember me when you enter into the kingdom. And our Lord looked at him and said, this day. And he said, not really. He said, what do you understand? Do you know the time of it? Huh? I, I'm so frustrated with people. I really am. This day, you will be with me in paradise. And here's the thing. Not too long after that, our Lord was done. He bowed his head with a loud voice, voice cried out, it's finished, bowed his head in dignity and departed from this life. That boy hung there for a while. They probably broke, you know, they came out there to break our Lord's legs. He was dead. I bet they broke theirs. He still had some suffering to endure. But he was safe in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. He had been there forever. But he was formerly a child of disobedience and was by nature a child of wrath. He fully deserved, he deserved everything he was getting. Thank God Paul didn't stop there. He didn't stop with verse 3, because notice verse 4. But God. But God. What happened? In that situation, dead in trespasses and sin, enemies in our minds by wicked work, alienated from God. God intervenes. You think about this. God purposed, and he will save a multitude of people just like these he described in verses 1 through 3. Miserable wretches. Not, not in most cases the best of the best, but the worst of the worst. Huh? Oh, there are some solitarcises. For the most part, who does our Lord deal with? Oh, there was a woman caught in an act of adultery. Right? The list is long. Of the ones that our Lord, a schemer named Jacob, a liar. A liar, two times, a double liar in his great, his grand, great grandfather, Abraham. Manasseh, 
Solomon, King David. I, th I thought about that a lot this week. King David, a murderer. Willful murderer. An adulterer. A liar. A deceiver himself. But God had in Christ put away his sin. That phrase, but God, makes it clear to me that if God hadn't intervened, all without exception, you know what happened to us? People say, though that's just not fair. Here's the long and the short of it. If God hadn't have chosen a people, there's not one person in this building or one person on this planet that has ever breathed a breath that would have ever chose this God. You hear me? You say, I would have. Well, then you don't know your own heart. What Solomon say? Who can say, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. Huh? There's none good, no, not one. There's none that understand it. There's none you hear me? There are none that seek after God. You'll seek a God of your imagination. You'll seek a God that your mom and daddy and grandma and grandpa and all of them did. Preachers told you. And when somebody presents this God to you, in your view, unless God does a work of grace, you'd be like those scribes and Pharisees when our Lord said to them, why can you not understand my words? Because you cannot hear my speech. Huh? If God hadn't purposed to save sinners, those unconcerned and unwilling, we would have continued in this state of wrath with absolutely no hope of salvation. Our Lord made it very clear. No man can come to me except the Spirit which hath sent me draw him. He stated it again. That's John 6, 44. He stated it again in John 6, 65. No man can come to me except the Father it is given unto him. You hear me? No man can come to me except it were given to him by the Father. And if you don't believe that, go over and read Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through verse 24. I was going to read it all. It's just too long. Go read it for yourself. Not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but God that shows mercy. Aren't you gratefully showed mercy to you? Huh? People say, y'all are the most prideful, separatist people on the planet. This ain't, they ain't nothing prideful about this. You think I'm being boastful because the Lord set his love on a sinner like me? Every true regenerate elect sinner... You know what their thought process is about their salvation? Why did he choose me? It ain't, well, he chose me and didn't choose you. Uh, there's, there's a lot of people better, quote, better people than me, kinder than me, more long-suffering than me, more giving than me, probably more faithful than me. As far as men count faithfulness, and I think what, and that, that's that's where our mind can. I think we think there's others that are more deserving than. Well, there's the problem right there. 
You see the, see the mindset in us? Even in us. <laughs> I deserve death. If you, if, if you deserve death, he'd have gave you death. You, you don't deserve death because all the death that was yours, where was it at? I'm telling you, the long and the short of it is this. Either he bore all your sins, he bore none of them. Past, present, and future. And I could care less what the pagans think about that. We're not using that for an excuse. If you are, you don't know this God. But here's the thing. When I don't forgive like I should, I should. Or I don't love. Like, I mean, think, think about all of those things. All the time they, they run, run rampant in my mind that we are forgive others as God for Christ's sake forgave us. What does that mean? That we ask Him to forgive us. No, He forgave us before we ever ask anything. Think about this one. If you're married, husband, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And keep it in its right perspective. Read the whole chapter because when he gets to the end of that example of the marriage, what's, it, what's he talking about? He said, I'm not talking about these physical marriages. Though we should be faithful to our wives. He said, I'm speaking of what? Christ and his church. But here's the thing. Paul tells us that God intervened. But thank God the same God that intervened, what is He? Look at the next phrase that He uses. Who is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. You know, mercy, when you think about it, mercy, it, it, in reality, it's a perfection of the divine nature. The only one that can truly show mercy is who? is God. It's essential to God. Yet we have to understand that to display and exercise a mercy toward any sinner, you know what it is? It's an act of God's free sovereign will. God tells us through Paul in Romans 9, 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. In other words, the sinner ain't bringing mercy out of God. You're not going to cause, you, you, you can cry your eyes out and God ain't going to be compassionate to you. Not. I will have mercy on him. I will have mercy. And God said to be rich in mercy because his mercy, you think about it, his mercy is perpetual and it's inexhaustible. <laughs> think about that. It's inexhaustible. It's free. And it's abundant. I think one of my favorite verses is Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies. It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new 
every morning. <laughs> Great is thy faithfulness. Not mine. His faithfulness. That Hebrew word translated mercy, it means goodness, loving kindness, and faithfulness. Remember what our Lord told those Pharisees? You know, they, they had, our Lord had, I went back and read the whole story there in Matthew chapter 9. The Jews, the, the, the Pharisees or the Jews, which included all of them by nature, they were uh, the apostles. It was a Sabbath day. And the apostles had went through and was pulling corn and eating the corn. Well, the eating ain't the problem, but to pull in the corn, what have you violated? <laughs> and they asked him, How you, why do you let your disciples eat, you know, pull corn, which that's work? Because everything was about, they violated the Sabbath day. And then they, actually, they looked at our Lord's, Disciples, they got them aside, the disciples, and they said, why does your master, and I, I emphasize that word, I capitalize it and highlight it, why does your master, because they say in another place, you, you know, they told that blind man, had been blind from his childhood up at our Lord, they said, your, your master, we have a master. Our master's who? Moses. Well, I tell you, you go to that taskmaster if you want to. Because I know what that taskmaster designs, desires, and demands. The soul that sins, what happens to it. You break the law in one point, you're guilty of all. And there's no way back. They said, why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? That's, that's their big issue. Well, listen to this. But when Jesus heard, but here's it. we can go further than that. Not only did he hear it, he knew it. He knew their thoughts. He said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician. Was well, he implying the Pharisees are whole? No, it's, it's, it's comparison and contrast. He's teaching them a lesson. This is a kind way of telling these guys they are, they do need a physician. Because here's the thing, nobody's whole. That was their big mistake by nature. They thought that they were whole, that they, they were well. But who needs a physician? I hate going to a doctor. I hate having tests run. Because you know if you go to the doctor and you have tests run, they're always going to find something wrong. They always, just about without exception, they're going to find something wrong. But I'm grateful that when I do get sick, I can go to a doctor and... Hopefully, they'll give me something that will take away the pain or the problem or the difficulty that I'm having. But he, then he tests to them this. But go ye, talking to these Jews that think they're whole, think they don't need a physician. He said, you go learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous. Now, he's not saying they're righteous, but they think they're righteous. Not come to call the righteous. Who's he come to call? Sinners. Sinners to repentance. That was the problem. They did not know they were sinners. You know where Christ quoted that from? 
Huh? You know where that came from? I will have mercy and not sacrifice. I tell you, I'm pretty certain that he quoted it to them in their own dialect because our Lord was a Jew. He spoke in the Jewish language to them, and he quoted from one that they quoted. That's Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. And listen to this. And the knowledge of God. And what he said, remember what Paul said over in Romans chapter 10? For my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, my kinsmen according to the flesh, is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God. What's that next phrase? But not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant, here's the knowledge that's missing, they being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Well, preach it to us, Hosea. For the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Huh? What's more important than sacrifice? Going down there to the temple and offering a goat or a wheat cake or whatever kind of pounded flour. What's more important? A knowledge of a righteousness. Hey, that we're righteous and complete in Him. They were accepted in the blood, but Paul doesn't stop. The Spirit moves him next, right? For His great love. Not just love. Not, not yeah, you just love. Love's love. No, no, it's great love. Wherewith, listen to this language, He loved. He loved us. We're told that the cause of our salvation, what is it? It's God's love. His great love. He said through Jeremiah's prophet, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, since I've loved you with an everlasting love, therefore have I drawn thee with loving kindness. You think about it. Our God loved us personally, particularly, and distinctly. And it wasn't for anything he saw in us. And thank God it was not for anything he saw done by us. He just loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sin. And again and again, Paul magnifies the grace of God. Who does God justify? God justifies the ungodly with no conditions, no merit, no foreseen goodness in the sin. God loved us, and that love provided everything necessary for our salvation, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin. John wrote it like this, herein's love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And since he loved us, what did he do? He sent his son, it says to be, it's in italic, he sent his son, because of his great love to us, he sent his love, the propitiation for those whom he, our sin, those that he loved. Perfect satisfaction. And therefore, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, or sent his son the propitiation for our sin. Look at verse 5 and 6. 
even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You think about it, three times in two verses, he puts us together with somebody. <laughs> God quickened us together with who? With Christ. He raised us up together with who? Christ. He, listen, he made us sit together in heavenly places where? In Christ. I, I, I don't think there could be anything more comforting and encouraging in the Word of God than that, that, that we're raised together, we're quickened with him. When, he. when he came forth from the tomb, who came with him? When God raised him from the dead, who, who, who was raised with him? And when he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, who sat down with him? <laughs> I'm, I'm standing in Grace Baptist Church in Ruston, Louisiana, still living and breathing, right? You are too. Where are we at? How does God view you this morning? In Christ his Son. And where is Christ his Son? Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where does he see us? He sees us in him. Every moment of every day forever. <laughs> I tell you what, that's the absolute certainty of the salvation of all the elect of God, those who are dead in trespasses and sins by nature and are by nature children of wrath. And I tell you something else, these words, they exclude any idea that salvation is conditioned on the sinner and they exclude forever any possibility that a true believer, one who's been brought to faith in Christ, can lose their salvation. And those blessed terms, quickened together, raised together, made to sit together, they tell us plainly that our final destiny, you know what it is? It's the exact same destiny as the Lord Jesus Christ. Exactly the same. Christ is one, is he not? He's one with the Father, one with the Spirit. And as one, he represents all those that were given to him by the Father in everlasting covenant of grace. So the one represents who? The many. Just like Adam, we fell in Adam, got everything Adam gave us. In Christ, not only was everything that Adam lost for us restored, but infinitely better. Whatever Adam had could be lost, and it was. What we have in Christ can never go away. And our persons are represented by, and they're in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ is the first fruit. And so what does he represent? He represents the whole crop. And I guarantee you with him is the first fruit, because the first fruit is what comes off is the best. And it's, it's representative of what the whole crop's going to be like. He's the bridegroom, what are we? We're the bride. 
And Christ has entered into heaven as our forerunner. He took possession of it. He told us, told his apostles, told you and me that where I am, what's going to happen? You'll be there too. And all of it is, verse 6 tells every bit of that is where? It's in Christ Jesus. All of it. Look at verse 7. We'll quit this morning. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Just like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, 12, and 14. You know what he does here in this verse, verse 7? He reveals to us, God's goal in salvation. And folks, listen to me closely. It was not just to fill up heaven. <laughs> That's not what it was about. It wasn't because God and the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit needed somebody. Matter of fact, if you go back and you read in Proverbs that wisdom, which is Christ's eternal word, what was he doing? He was always rejoicing before the Father forever, before anything had been done. His goal is what? His own glory. That's what this is all about. Throughout eternity, God will have a people in whom and by whom he will be glorified. Unchanged, yet glorified. Before them, see, we have to get these things right. This, this great, glorious, wonderful act of redemption and salvation and justification, it does not change God. It does not make him more glorious. It glorifies him before those who are participants in it, who see it and embrace it. And this phrase, the exceeding riches of his grace and in kindness, you know what is that? What's that include? Election? Regeneration? Calling? Justification? Satisfaction? Sanctifi uh, just sanctification? And final conformity, both in body and soul, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that is given to us. All that grace is shown, it's shown toward us how? Through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means that all of it is based on Christ's person and his work, his very obedience unto death, him fulfilling every condition of salvation necessary to glorify and honor God and every attribute of his character as both a just God and a Savior. We'll stop right there and we'll come back. We'll deal next week, Lord willing, with verses 8 through 10, probably three of the best-known verses <laughs> in the book of Ephesians. Most people don't know Ephesians 1, but I guarantee you, friends, no, they all know Ephesians 2, verse 8, and they can quote it to you, for by grace are you saved through faith. We'll come back and we'll deal with that next week. You're dismissed to worship. I appreciate your presence.